Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame, with your co-host and producer today, Sabrina Hope. Hi, everyone. And uh, our lovely guest tonight is Patrick Hill from the Earth Sciences Department. Thank you for having me. Great. We're very glad to have you. So, uh, Whoops, that was me just dropping the headphones, <laughs> trying to do two jobs at once. There we go. Okay, it's all good. <laughs> Okay, on with the show. <laughs> so, um, we could start with talking a little bit about your work, and I think there was some stuff about moons and uh, a Mars-sized planet or something. Mm-hmm. So, why don't you go from there and tell us a little bit about what you do. So, I look at lunar material. That is, I look at lunar meteorites and Apollo samples, and what I'm doing is trying to uncover the origin of the moon and how it formed and its early sort of processes that it underwent uh, in an attempt to really contextualize what happened in the early solar system. Uh, Our leading hypothesis is one of four that look, and that's the giant impact hypothesis. Uh, And that's where the Mars-sized body that we labeled Fea uh, collided with the Earth early in its history, and from the debris, uh, you formed the Moon. Wow, you know, uh, I I I heard you you were working on Moon stuff, and it, I, at first I thought, oh, how do you do that? Do you go to the Moon? Like what? <laughs> That's kind of awesome. cool. You just you know, on the weekends, yeah. get some. That's data part of his back. field work. Is yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a cool field project. So, so how does one study uh, lunar things? <laughs> so, if you want um, material, as you've highlighted, you have to go get it, or it comes to you. And so, uh, one great thing about the Cold War was that there was a space race, and they went to space, and uh, there was uh, the Apollo missions, and they collected uh, almost four hundred. Uh, I think it's kilograms of sample. Uh, it's in the 300 kilos of sample, and they returned that back. There's also the lunar sam- uh, missions by the Soviets, so they did autonomous uh, rover. Uh, well, not really rover, but landers, and they tra- extracted material um, and returned it to Earth. And so you can either study that, you can request it from NASA uh, to look at that material. Um, obviously, you have to be justified than just handing it out to everybody because they only have so much and it's not really on the books to get more anytime soon and it is expensive or you can study the material that comes to us so there is a lot of debris in space and uh, it's hitting earth all the time but it's also hitting the moon and so what happens is if a large enough material hits the moon it causes this explosive event and forms an impact crater and from that you get a lot of debris and that can leave at a velocity fast enough that it leaves um, has escape the escape velocity of the moon uh, and so then all it has to do is it has to accidentally fall into the earth's orbit and we can pick it up and study it so uh, we have a relationship with um, a university in Oman and um, 
that because it's the desert, you can really see the material falls all the time, and it fall, falls all over the earth, so a lot of it's lost the ocean. Uh, but it's really easy to see in desert environments because there's a lot less erosion and ice environments, so Antarctica. Uh, and so they have supplied us with some material. So I work with Apollo samples and lunar meteorites. And do you have access to these samples here at Western then? Like, or you have to go to get them? Like, So what happens is you send an application. Um, you outline sort of like a grant proposal of what you want to do. These are the methodologies you want to uh, perform. I look at stable isotopes of these materials, and that's a destructive technique. So it's a lot harder to get material. Um, but fortunately, I only need about two milligrams of sample per run so uh, they just uh, they decided that we could have 12 sam different samples that span uh, most of the missions uh, and they give you a little piece of it it comes in an atmosphere controlled and it's stored uh, under high security at Weston. oh that's amazing yeah. wow so there's little pieces of the moon on campus but then you destroy them and then i yes i <laughs> Wait. vaporize them yeah. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, tell tell us more about that. So I look at stable isotopes. Um, a lot of people that don't really know about them, so they're sort of the way I describe them uh, is they're like um, uh, I, different flavors of ice cream. So if we look at how um, ice cream is ice cream, just as um, so hydrogen is hydrogen because it has one proton. Helium is helium because it has two protons. That's its atomic number, and that's what it is. Uh, but what can vary is the number of neutrons in the nucleus, and that doesn't really change how it reacts chemically because that's dictated by its electrons, which is dictated by the protons. These are neutral uh, atoms, so they just really add mass. And so there's a stable configuration. So for oxygen, for example, one of the isotopes I'm interested in, um, there is eight protons and eight neutrons in its most stable form, and that's a mass of 16, and that's like vanilla ice cream. Uh, and that makes up 99.7 of all oxygen you will ever encounter in your daily life. Uh, but there are two other predominantly stable configurations, and that's oxygen 17 and uh, oxygen 18, so they're like strawberry and vanilla. And only on occasion, like less than 1% of all oxygen that you breathe will be these uh, configurations. So it's just slightly heavier. Uh, and so I look at those ratios to try and see um, if we can detect uh, fail in the moon. Um, the reason because of that is because um, when we look at the Earth, one of the, uh, the solar system, sorry, uh, when we look throughout the solar system, we see that at different radiuses, so for example, if you look at Mars material, it has a different ratio than Earth, and you can clearly see that. Um, from our modeling of this process, uh, we believe that mo at least 40%, if not more, of the moon should be made of Theia. Um, but that means that if they are formed at some distance other than Earth's radius from the sun, that you should see that isotope ratio, and that's what I'm looking for. And 
and that's what you're finding then? Or are you still uh, so, in the research? Or? Yeah, so we're still conducting research. Um, we have some exciting preliminary results, but we're still cautious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this work is about finding like the origin of the moon, where it, how it was formed, where it came from. And so why, why is that, like, um, like, why are you interested in that? Like, how'd you come to the, to study this? Um, so I guess the, my undergraduate was just in geology. Um, so we looked at, uh, it was, I did it at UBC. And so we looked at how the Rockies formed, how the, those mountains formed, how all these different earth processes, how granites form and things like that. And then in my last year, I took a planetary geology course. And that was really looking at taking what we know about how the Earth uh, forms and the process it undergoes and taking that to different bodies and trying to understand the geology of those surfaces and those interiors. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. Uh, and Weston, uh, through the Center of Planetary Science and Space Exploration, has uh, one of the only graduate programs in Canada that will give you a degree in, say, Earth Sciences and Planetary Science. And so I contacted a supervisor, uh, Gordon Ozinski, and he had, uh, I told him I was interested in the moon, and that's sort of how that went. Um, and yeah, yeah, we filled out a proposal my first summer uh, in the August. Uh, it was sort of nerve-wracking because I started in May, and I'd been looking at some samples, just some lunar meteorites up until that point, and then I got an email from uh, my supervisor saying that the proposal deadline was end of August, so we should apply for samples, and I was like, I have to go ask NASA for samples, and it was just nerve-wracking, but we succeeded, so yeah. Oh, that must be an amazing feeling, you know, <laughs> you, 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 uh, you know, since an undergrad this is the first time you're applying to like yeah. the real world for real stuff and uh they came back and said yeah. yeah it's always sort of surreal seeing the nasa logo on a mail when you get it that nasa stamp and that is coming from houston it's pretty cool that's amazing cool. no this sounds really exciting and what you get to do and uh so were you always fascinated with the moon as a kid growing up or um no particularly the moon. Um, I guess one of the attractions is that it's so close. Uh, before I started this research, I guess what I didn't really completely understand is how unique our moon is compared to the other ones. That's why we have to call into this rather unique uh, theory uh, for its formation. Uh, before they went on the Apollo missions, there was three main sort of guesses based on just looking up at it about how it formed. Um, there was one where uh, we maybe caught it um, sort of like a baseball, <laughs> like it formed maybe as an asteroid and it just caught in our orbit. The other one was that it just formed alongside the Earth and the uh, final one they proposed was that it ripped out of Earth. Um, so the, um, you said at the beginning, there's like four main theories, yeah. and those are the those the are the four. other three. Those are the other three. three yeah. Okay, so which one's kind of like winning in the? So what the happened race? was when <laughs> we uh, returned samples uh, and did missions on the moon. So the the forming alongside um, 
didn't really work because it didn't really understand uh, explain the bulk chemistry of the moon um the moon has a really small iron core that makes no sense if it just coalesced the same material as the earth it should be proportionate um the capture theory doesn't really work because you can't slow down the moon it's just it doesn't really work with the angular momentum and the physics of the situation uh and then the ripping of the moon out of the earth uh could explain why you don't have that much iron nickel in the core but then you have to have some sort of process that caused just a huge mass to come out of the uh it's like the earth had a baby or something just like a giant blob (laughs) just out there okay (laughs) so um then people started uh in the 70s proposing this giant impact hypothesis and uh it just started it met our criteria and uh, it's been our best working model um but up until recently the problem is that we haven't really been able to detect this difference we haven't been able to find Fea in the moon mm. uh, especially isotopically um, and so that's been the biggest hiccup and that's what we're trying to overcome right now yeah. and so if you can't find sorry you're saying Thea? Yes, the, that impactor that came in that, and then caused all the debris to form. Okay, so if you can't find it, then what does that mean? Like, it, there's another theory? Or so, what would you guys, yeah. There's two sort of um, ideas as to why we can't see it. Um, because it works very well to explain all of the features, very few people would like to get rid of the theory. Rather, either Fea formed at the same distance of the Earth, and so you therefore wouldn't see that same ratio. Uh, and maybe it was just a, a matter of it catching up, and that's how the collision happened. Alternatively, um, we think what could have happened is that during that, right after that collision, is you had a giant, most of the Earth was still there as a, as a molten glob. Um, but there was a lot of debris and the temperatures that this impact would have had would have been exceeding thousands of Kelvin. And so you would have had a lot of gas and dust and uh, molten material just in almost a disk around the Earth. Mm. And so the idea, maybe if we can't see Euphaya, is that isotopically um, it all balance, it came into equilibrium the material that formed in the debris looks similar to the material that came from Earth because it began to exchange. And therefore, in that time as the moon was forming, it really just formed a, a sort of homogenized pot that looks a lot more similar to the Earth mm-hmm. uh, because it had that chance to equivalent with the, <laughs> with the Earth. Yeah. So it could be... You guys were close with the theory, but right. it's also like kind of a mix of, of right. a bit of Earth um, in there as well. Yeah. yeah. So just as every, it is still a theory. Uh, there are still some people that prefer the other models and are trying to explain uh, aspects of the moon in context of those other theories. Everyone has a favorite, I guess. You said, um, you know, that 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 there was these past missions where they got the material from mm-hmm. the moon that you you requested to study, and now yeah. you're 
using to study. Um, and you said that we're, we're unlikely to go again and get some more. Right. Um, why not? Why aren't we uh, um, heading back on up there? So I, when I, I said we, I was really speaking on behalf of NASA, which is probably something I shouldn't do, but... Um, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so, and, uh, so the goal for NASA has always, has, uh, in recent years, has been Mars. Everyone loves Mars. Mm-hmm. Search of life on another body. And that's really cool. Uh, the Republicans under George W. Bush wanted to go back to the moon first. They said, you know what, um, before we go put a human on Mars, maybe we should test it out again on the um, moon. Because, I mean, if you start reading the history of the Apollo missions, uh, getting us the man to the moon, there was a, it was very rushed to beat mm-hmm. the Soviets. And probably would not pass health and safety regulations in current day processes. Um, So that was their tactic, was to go back to the moon. And then when Obama came in, uh, he decided that NASA should not go back to the moon, uh, and rather we were more interested in what is currently OSIRIS-REx, and that's going to an, an asteroid and collecting some material from an asteroid and bringing it back. Um, sounds, and a lot, sounds a lot harder. Yeah, go to the moon. <laughs> uh, we have the Japanese have already done that. So, oh. uh, and we've done the Stardust mission, which collected comet dust and then came back to Earth. So, um, anything's possible if you you put brilliant minds to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really, they started talking about maybe not going back to the moon maybe doing something like in cis-lunar orbit and just looking at the surface and worrying about that. But other agencies have become interested uh, in it. Uh, China in particular has proposed sample return missions. I think it was last year or the year before they had their Jade Rabbit where it had those poetic John Stewart verses or whatever it was as it slowly um, went out of commission and lost its battery. Uh, and I think either this year or next year they're trying to do some sample return missions, so there might be more material coming back. Um, Europe has always expressed interest of going back to the moon. Uh, in fact, there's a d- section of uh, the European Space Agency that's looking at forming a moon base. Uh, they want to propose that idea um, because it is obviously easier to launch off the moon because it's lower gravity than Earth. Uh, and it's also, as a satellite, always facing the Earth. Uh, so you could use it as a long-term communication relay, what have you. And it's also a lot easier to go to the moon than it is to Mars, especially in logistics and communication. It takes about nine months to get to Mars. A lot of things can go wrong, things like that. Not constant. There's a communication delay with Mars, not so much with the moon. Uh, so it looks like the moon's coming back into fashion, so to say, with different agencies. Um, I've always joked with my friends that it would be funny if, say, the Chinese went to the moon and they did like a logistics test and saw maybe if they could pinpoint their landing and land near one of the Apollo 14 sites and if they accidentally knocked over the American flag and put up the communist Chinese flag, because I'm sure 
within a year they would be back um so yeah that would <laughs> act of war i mean like <laughs> why not? No. i mean things happen in space right so it, it's not on the tables but um one can help so um how important is the the moon to earth like why it's like in terms of like how it affects us right so i mean we do feel it every day with tides even um all around the world um beyond just the bay of fundy there's more there's tides everywhere um it's important for understanding the impacting uh, impact cratering history of the earth and solar system so uh, we have plate tectonics on the moon uh, on the earth sorry it's no plate tectonics on the moon okay. you can scratch that <laughs> um, so that we have that on the earth and what that means is that things are always on the crust being recycled um, so a lot of our crust is very young um, and only very few parts of it uh, what we call craton so what makes up the Canadian shield is very very old um, and we have a lot of water and so there's a lot of weathering a lot of materials getting recycled but on the moon um, you don't have that there are no plate tectonics on the moon and so you just have uh, a bombardment of the moon by impact cratering uh, and so you're able to really record what has happened in the early solar system um, it's what has given rise to our theory of how planetary crusts form it's given us uh, understanding of the impact cratering rate um, there seems to have been a huge spike in impact cratering around 3.8, 3.9 billion years ago. We don't, um, and so we've called that the heavy bombardment, but we don't see that on Earth because we don't really have a lot of crust from that time. Um, we can also use it to relatively date surfaces of other planetary bodies. So for example, if something is heavily cratered, so they have lots of bowls on the surface, um, you would infer that it is uh, really, really old. Uh, and we can confirm, we know the age of those samples returned by the Apollo missions, and we can radioactively date them so that we know, for example, we collected this rock from this portion, it is this X cratered, and it is 4.1 billion years old, and so you can make a curve uh, about the surface. And so then all you could have to do is say, if you were looking at Mars, you would say, well, it's this much closer to the asteroid belt, which is where all these cratering material is coming from. So we expect it to in a factor of certain amount of more material hitting it. Uh, and so we say, we count the craters on that su surface and we say it's that old, that or without actually having to go to Mars or Venus mm -hmm. or Mercury. And that's been really useful because, um, for example, uh, we've seen that Venus doesn't have many uh, craters on its surface. So that implies that uh, it's a very young surface. So all their planetary tectonism on Venus, it, what process is renewing the crust on Venus is still an outstanding question. Uh, and then for everyday life, uh, the moon has certainly played an important part in the formation of our uh, of life. 
if you think about it, uh, all, some, of, some of the most abundant biodiverse regions of the Earth are crusts. And really those are products of the formation of the continental shelf um, and erosional features by the tides going in and out. What's the continental shelf? Uh, so that's the portion of the continent before it. So there's the oceanic crust, uh, and that's formed by mid, uh, a rift, uh, and that's what forms the Pacific and the Atlantic. Uh, and then there is the continental crust, and that's where all the land is. But there's a section uh, between the shoreline and the ocean, and that's dependent on where sea level rise is at uh, and that is the continental shelf so that's still continental crust it's just underwater uh, but it is an oceanic crust per se uh, and so tidal formation has one could say is very important in the develop of complex life on earth and that's an important relationship mm-hmm. and it's also uh, something maybe not um, economically useful but knowing where the moon comes from and where our earth moon system comes from i think is an important question to ask just as where do human come from humans come from and such like totally Hmm. well you know um there's um other things I want to talk to you about, and I know we only have about five minutes, so I want to, like, this is amazing stuff, and I, I love the moon, <laughs> and we could talk for another hour, but I also want you to talk about um, your other uh, position here at Western. You are part of SOGS, and you're the, our pride commissioner here. Yeah. So, yeah, can you please tell us about that role? Yeah, so the pride commissioner was set up as a sort of a liaison, a representative of the LGBTQIA plus community within graduate students to, and to represent those to council and represent those graduate students to provide them with resources and create a general sense of community for them here on campus. Yeah. Okay, so, and uh, you also, I think, mentioned to us that you um, were involved in the uh, the Pride Parade. Right, so, so one of the events that we... Um, throughout the year, what I've been trying to do is raise a create a sense of community by collecting, say, resources of different uh, LGBTQIA plus groups on campus. Um, I've also had held a couple of events. We've uh, ran advertisements for uh, a film, uh, LGBT film event on campus. And we also represented Western uh, SOGS in um, the Pride Parade. Uh, SOGS also donated uh, $1,000 to the Pride London and we walked in the parade so we're trying to strive to create that sense of community for LGBTQIA plus students. Mm-hmm. Do you have any upcoming events um, that you would like to share or any resources? Um, so we're currently compiling resources and we're going to make it put it on the SOGS webpage. Um, we did just have the parade so I am unfortunately fresh out of events. <laughs> out of events? Yeah, um, that's okay. But I, we certainly uh, will hope to have some, especially in September with new graduate students coming in. Okay, excellent. Yeah. And in terms of your research as well, going back to your research, if um, anyone listening is interested and wants to follow along what you're doing, where can they go? Uh, so I'm on Twitter uh, as Luna Patrick. Um, so you can follow me there. I post cool pictures of the moon sometimes um 
or you can also my supervisor dr gornozinski has a website called space rocks uh, if you google that that will highlight his research as well as um, other research he does so he his big thing is impact cratering uh, and so he doesn't just work on the moon he also does impact craters on earth on mars uh, and that really their their formation processes the rocks they form and uh, their potential for um, life uh, particularly for astrobiology and things like that okay yeah. awesome we'll make note of that in the description Cool. And uh, I think you were, uh, sorry, you were supposed to ask that question, Ariel. About <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. okay. Well, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a good talk we had. I think I learned yeah. a lot about um, the moon and cool. where, where it came from. Glad I helped. I think we're having uh, an eclipse or is a solar. That, yes. Sorry, that's a solar. Is that tonight? Uh, there is Tomorrow? a eclipse soon. Oh, I but guess. I think you have to be further south to see it. I'm not sure how oh, okay. well you can see it from. Canada. And this will air next week, so it doesn't stop us from having an eclipse party, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> new, new event. You know? And it is a full moon. I. Believe. I think NASA I is actually doing something for it. I don't know. I think they're sending scientists on a jet uh, to so cool. observe it. So maybe they usually are really good for live streaming things because it's all public. So how do you get on that jet? Like you have to be a scientist. Like there's. Is there Actually, a possibility uh, you could get on the jet? Uh, not me personally. I know someone, a recent grad from Western is, uh, was invited to do it. So Amazing. she'll be on it, I think. Or she's doing something with it. And so she's going to well, text you? Yeah. From the Share she, on she's Twitter. She's very if you know. active on Twitter. So oh, okay. okay, there we go. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, it's uh, it's been great having you. Oh, no um, thanks, thanks for, for coming on. You. Yes, thank you. Uh, I think that's all the time that we have. Yeah, do you want to... Uh, okay, yeah, that's all the time we have. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, guys, uh, thanks for listening to GradCast uh, on CHRW, if you're listening to us live on the radio, uh, which we're, we are uh, 6 p.m. on Tuesday, every, every Tuesday at uh, 94. 94.9 94. 94.9 <laughs> <laughs> Western's uh, uh, campus radio station that's right and uh, uh, if you're not listening us listening to us live then you may be listening to us via our website uh, gradcast.ca and you can go there to see more about our show uh, and uh, if you're a grad student or uh, and you want to come on the show or you want to actually join the committee we're looking for other people to host just like I am right now mm-hmm. uh, uh, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com and that's our show thanks for joining us thank you everyone